Tonight we continue our study, in which we've been engaged for some time, in 1 John, the epistle of certainties, as it has been called. And it has been called, as we've mentioned before, the epistle of love, from the apostle of love, John, the apostle, who was given that designation because he had so much to write in his inspired writings about love. And yet John, obviously, as an inspired man and as an apostle of Christ, understood biblically-based love, and that it was not simply emotion, that it was not simply feeling, but that it was tied, love that is, to law, that is, to the keeping of the Lord's commandments. And therefore, he had much to write in that regard, as in 1 John 2 and verse 3 as we have already studied. Now by this we know that we know him, if we what? Show our emotion toward him? No, we should do that. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And his commandments, he later writes, are not grievous. A little bit later on, in a part of this great epistle, which we have not yet studied, John will write in 1 John 4:19, we love him because he first loved us. But John understood that the manifestation of love for God is seen in the keeping of his commandments. And John also understood that we can know that we know, as we've already seen from 1 John 2 and verse 3. And so it's appropriate that this epistle would be called the epistle of certainties, but also the epistle of love. And as we enter into this section of our study in 1 John 2, beginning at verse 18 and looking at the verses through verse 25 tonight, John introduces something to us about which only John writes in his writings, and that is the term antichrist. And obviously there is a great deal of misunderstanding and misapplication and misapprehension about, about Antichrist. And there have been various uh, opinions uh, through time about who the singular great Antichrist would be or is or has been. Saddam Hussein uh, perhaps was thought by some to, to be the Antichrist at the time that he was uh, wielding his uh, evil influence in the world before his demise. Others through time have been speculated to be the Antichrist. But is it the case that there is one specific Antichrist? Or is it the case that John simply writes of a spirit or an attitude that is Antichrist that was being manifested in his day by those who had that spirit of being Antichrist? And is it the case that Antichrist is a term that should be viewed and appreciated in the plural and not just in the singular. I think the latter is the case, as we shall see from what John writes about it. In other words, he informs his readers that there were many antichrists, plural, who were already at work in his time and that they manifested a spirit that was anti-Christ. And that's simply what antichrist is, isn't it? Anti is opposed to or opposite to, and Christ obviously is the Messiah, the only begotten Son of God. And so there 
is that spirit of Antichrist in the sense of one who opposes Christ, and it could also be viewed as one who places himself in the position of Christ as a false Christ. Jesus warned that before the destruction of Jerusalem, in Matthew 24, as he warned there, there would be those false Christ who would arise. And he warned those in that time not to follow them, not to be deceived by those false Christ. And so there are two senses in which Antichrist can be viewed, one who places himself in the position of Christ, one who simply is in opposition to the Christ. Both situations would certainly constitute being anti-Christ. Now, in the verse we're looking at now, in verse 18, the word anti-Christ is capitalized here in the New King James. But we don't need to let that throw us necessarily because the translators of the New King James did choose to capitalize anti-Christ. The King James does not capitalize anti-Christ in this verse. And it is also the case that the definite article the is not in the original text here. So that literally it is little children, it is the last hour, or as the King James says, the last time, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. And that's the way the King James renders the passage. That Antichrist, not that the Antichrist, but that Antichrist, little a, they do not capitalize it, the King James translators did not, that Antichrist is coming. Well, that would indicate that that spirit or attitude opposed to Christ was predicted and would come. And that even now it has come, John says. Many antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. Now, the last hour refers to the same uh, situation that he expresses in the first part of the verse. Little children, it is the last hour. Now, there's been a great deal of speculation about uh, and different interpretation about what the last hour uh, is. There are those who give an early date to the writing of First of John being written, they believe, before the destruction of Jerusalem, though most commentators would place the writing of First John uh, much later in the uh, A.D. 91 to A.D. 92 period. And those who place the writing of John around A.D. Uh, 68 or so before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 would say that the last hour is a reference to the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem. But uh, they base that based upon the specificity of the last hour and believing that it refers to the destruction of Jerusalem. But why should we necessarily believe that the last hour refers to the destruction of Jerusalem? Why can it not simply refer to the last period of time in which we now find ourselves, which is the Christian dispensation, the last days as it is elsewhere expressed. And it's interesting that the word translated hour here is a word that literally means a set date or specific period of time. For example, it would be the word that would be used in relation to our seasons of the year. We have specified times for fall, winter, spring, and summer. Well, does the Bible say anything about specified times as in the patriarchal dispensation, the Mosaic dispensation, and the Christian dispensation? Indeed, it does. And indeed, we know that last days elsewhere is an expression that refers to the last time, the last period of time, meaning the Christian dispensation. And so, it is the case, I believe, that quite likely that is what John refers to. 
If John was written before A.D. 70, then certainly it could have a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. But I know certainly what it does not refer to, as some have speculated. Some have speculated that John was saying that the Lord is about to come again. And that he had a misapprehension. John the Apostle, writing by inspiration, had a misapprehension about the second coming of Christ and falsely believed and therefore wrote that the Lord was going to come again. I know that's not true. I know that's not true because obviously John wrote by inspiration. And so to attribute a false apprehension on his part is to, is to speak against the inspiration of the New Testament. And so the preponderance of the study, I would suppose, would lead us to believe that this is simply a reference to the Christian dispensation, that it is the last dispensation of time, and that there would be, remember as Paul wrote, in the latter time, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Paul said in the last days, in the last time, in the Christian dispensation, during this last period of time, there would be those who would apostatize. And so, why would John not have reference to the same thing, that same period of time? And so what John is saying is there's a spirit of antichrist that is coming and is even now among us. Many antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. Now remember as we introduced the book of 1 John, we mentioned that there were Gnostics in John's time who denied the divinity of Christ. They uh, claimed that divinity and humanity could not dwell in the same individual that they were mutually exclusive and that deity could have nothing to do with, with humanity and therefore it was an impossibility for Christ to have come to this earth as deity and, and in, uh, inhabited a human body that they could not, that would not be a possibility. There was one position that said that, that the Christ came upon Christ at his baptism and left him at his uh, crucifixion. That was some of the teaching of these Gnostics that John had to deal with in his day. They were anti-Christ in the literal sense that they denied, many of them, that Christ had literally come in the flesh. That Jesus was just a human being, that Christ uh, could not have embodied the, uh, the human uh, Christ, the, the, the Jesus that walked the earth could not have been deity and humanity at the same time. And so they were denying that Jesus came in the flesh. They were denying his divinity. Now when John writes to little children, he again is using that beloved tender term that we have already seen him use. And in the previous section, remember we studied last time, he specified different groups among the churches. I write to you little children, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men. But here he's back to the expression in verse 18 of addressing the body as a whole, the spiritual body of the church, referring to them as little children and reminding them that it is the last time and that there are threats among them. There are those who are opposed to Christ and we know that because of their presence we are in that final dispensation of time. There will be no further dispensation. Now he speaks of them as those in verse 19 here who had at one time been faithful disciples. Notice this verse. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Now this is a passage that those who claim that once you were saved, you were always saved, latch on to in an effort to try to show that what John was saying is that these people who went out from among them had never been saved in the first place. And that if they ever had been saved, they would have never gone out from among them because once you're saved, you're always saved. That's not what this verse teaches at all. That's not what the Bible teaches about salvation. The Bible clearly teaches, as we've talked about many times from differing passages, that indeed those who were saved can indeed apostatize. They can abandon their faith. And tragically, many have done that. What does the verse say? They went out from us. Can you go out from something you've never been a part of? No. So when John says they went out from us, the clear implication is they were among us, but they went out from us. But then when he says, but they were not of us, he's not saying they were never a part of us, but they became such in their thinking that they apostatized. They didn't maintain the same mindset, the same faithfulness, the same determination that other faithful Christians maintain, they began to change their thinking, they began to change their teaching, and ultimately, ultimately, they separated themselves from us because we were no longer like-minded. Now let me ask you something. Have you ever known of any situation in the Lord's church where there have been divisions based upon a departure from the truth where those who departed for a period of time, for a period of time, stayed with the faithful body of Christians wherever they were, but ultimately they digressed so much in their thinking and in their belief that ultimately they determined they wanted to be on their own and they wanted to start a new group and they wanted to call it whatever, but they went out from the faithful. Why, of course, if you've been in the church any length of time, tragically you have known of that kind of tragic situation that has occurred. That's exactly what John is talking about here. He's not saying that these people were never saved to begin with. They were a part of the faithful body of Christians at one time, but their mindset changed. Just as tragically the mindset of many in the Lord's church who at one time were faithful and loved the truth have now tragically left the truth and have imbibed false teaching and are practicing false teaching and involved in false practices. That's what John is saying. They no longer thought as we did, and if they had, they would have continued with us, he says, but they went out, they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. He doesn't say that they might be made manifest that none of them were ever a part of us, but that at the time they went out, they were no longer a part of us. Because we had, we had separated so dramatically that ultimately they broke off and left us. A tragedy indeed, a tragedy that we wish had only been in the past and did not continue to this present time, but it does. And that's what John is describing here. As he goes on in verse 20, he reminds those in the church of this particular period of time 
the time when the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, remember, were still available. He reminds them, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, the Christ. You know all things. Remember that Christ promised the apostles that when he left to go back to the Father, he would send the Holy Spirit who would endow them with the power not only to preach and to teach by inspiration, but also to lay hands on other disciples in the infancy of the church in order to impart to them miraculous gifts of the Spirit that were to serve the church until this book, as I mentioned this morning, would be completed. When that which is complete or whole had come, then that which is in part, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, would be done away. That time has come and gone, but we're reading about a time when this had not yet come in its full and final form, and therefore these miraculous gifts were needed for various reasons. One of those reasons those gifts were needed was to what? Discern whether or not teachers were teaching truth. And so he says to some here, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. If you drop down, if you have your Bibles open to verse 27, he mentions this anointing again. It's not a verse that we'll cover tonight. But he writes there, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Where was that teaching at the time John wrote? Not here, not in this book as it is now, but it was in individuals through the laying on of the apostles' hands and imparting miraculous gifts to them, one of which was the discerning of spirits, to discern, to be able to tell whether a spirit, a teacher, is the meaning of a spirit, whether a teacher was teaching the truth or not. Now if you look over at 1 John 4 and verse 1 in the same context, here John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. What is a spirit? Who is a spirit? The teachers. Don't believe every teacher, but what? But test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So they were to test the spirits. How were they to test them? They didn't have all of God's will revealed to them in written form as we do. That's how we test the spirits today. How do I know if someone's teaching the truth or teaching error? Because I have all the truth. I have all the truth here. I can compare what I hear to what I read here, and I can know whether what I'm hearing is true. They didn't have that same situation. Therefore, the miraculous gifts were needed. And I can read specifically of that gift of discerning of spirits in 1 Corinthians 12, a verse, a context we looked at in the lesson this morning, as a matter of fact. But the manifestation, this is verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12, but the manifestation of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, these miraculous gifts is what, is under, what are under consideration here, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Then he talk, starts to talk about the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith, we talked about that miraculous use of faith this morning, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, verse 10, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, listen to this one, 
to another discerning of spirits. To another, among these gifts, to some were given the what? The ability to discern what was being taught. It was a miraculous gift of the Spirit. It is that miraculous gift to which John obviously refers when he says to them, you have an anointing from the Holy One. You have these miraculous gifts. Do we have those miraculous gifts today? No. Do we need those miraculous gifts today? No. Why? Because, as we've often said, we bask in the sunlight age of the gospel. We have the full revelation of God in its final and written form. We have all that we need to furnish a man completely unto every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We actually have a better situation than they had then. And we know we do because Paul, in the context of 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, said what? When I was a child, I spake as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. What was he talking about? Miraculous gifts. Miraculous gifts were for the children in the church, so to speak. In other words, they were for the church in its infancy, in its early stages. But when the perfect came, and I hold it in my hand, that which is in part was no longer needed, and it was done away. But we're reading about a time before it was done away, the miraculous, that is, and therefore they needed that gift, among other gifts, of the discerning of spirits. And that's what we're reading about here. And then verse 21, but he says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. He's simply reminding them of things they need to be reminded of. And he goes on in verse 22, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Now, if we want a definition of what Antichrist is, in John's context here immediately, he gives it to us right here in the latter part of verse 22. He says he is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Now, let me ask you this. Can you deny the Father and claim the Son? Or can you claim the Son and deny the Father? I read recently that the skeptic Voltaire on an occasion of seeing some magnificent uh, work of God in creation, cried out verbally in praise to God the Father, and then realized what he had done and said, but I do not worship the Son. He wanted to give credit to the Father for creating the beautiful sight he was seeing, but he quickly caught himself and said, but I do not worship the Son. Can't have that both ways. You can't claim the Father and deny the Son because in so doing you've denied both. And John makes that abundantly clear in the next verse, verse 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. You cannot have one without the other. And yet tragically... In the world in which we live tonight, there are those who claim to believe in God, and yet they do not claim or accept the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And therefore, whether they realize it or not, they do not have God either. What did Jesus come to this earth to do? To show us the Father, didn't he? Jesus came to reveal the Father, and obviously to pay the ultimate price so that we 
as human beings could be reconciled to the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. He who has seen me, he told Philip on one occasion, remember, has seen the Father. How can you say, Philip, he asked, how can you say, show us the Father? How could we say, show us the Father, if indeed, if indeed, we do not look for the Father in the Son? He's there, and God is revealed to us, the Father, through Jesus Christ. In verse 24, John writes, Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. What would that be? The gospel. That would simply be the gospel. He's writing to those who'd obeyed this gospel, and he says, You let that abide in you. And that word abide is a strong word, and it's used time and time again. In the context of John 15, beginning at verse 1, down through the teaching that Jesus gives about himself as the vine and my father as the husbandman, six times in those early verses he uses that word abide. If you abide in me. And here John uses it, let that abide in you. And the word is a strong word that means in a, literally let it settle in. Let it take root. Let it find a home in you. What? The word. Let it abide in you, that which you heard from the beginning. And if what you heard from the beginning abides, that same idea, if it's really settled in your heart, if that word is truly implanted and has settled into your heart, the biblical heart being the mind, and is directing your life, then you have this assurance. You will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now that ought to bring the greatest possible comfort that anyone could possibly contemplate if one is thinking as one ought to think. Can there be anything more assuring, anything that gives more comfort than the knowledge that you dwell in God and in Jesus Christ? And there is but one way to know that you do, and that is by letting this abide in you. Not some better felt than told experience, but that which is certain, and clear, and inspired. The word of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the final verse we look at tonight, he then adds further comfort to those last words. When he writes, and this is the promise that he has promised us eternal life. Now again, there are those who claim that we have eternal life here and now. We have it. No one can ever take it away from us. Again, it gets back to the false doctrine, tragically, of once saved, always saved. Once you've been saved, you can never be lost. You have eternal life, and there's no way that anyone can ever take that away from you. But what does John remind us of here? This is the reality that, no, this is the promise that he has promised us. What is that promise, John? It is the promise of eternal life. A promise is just that, something that is yet to be fulfilled. We have eternal life in prospect. We can know that as we continue to walk in the light, as God is in the light, 
as we follow his will, as we confess our sins to the throne of heaven, as John has already reminded us in 1 John 1, 7 through 9, then we have the assurance that eternal life will one day be ours as long as we remain faithful, but that's the key, as long as we remain faithful. And it is not the case, nor is it ever taught in Scripture, that one, whether one becomes unfaithful, leaves the word or not, that if he's ever known it and ever obeyed it, he'll always have eternal life. He may turn his back upon it. He may lose the joy of his salvation, if some have contended, but he'll never lose his salvation. You can't lose salvation once you've obtained it. Why, of course you can. And literally hundreds of passages, as we've often said, clearly point out that you can. You can make shipwreck of the faith. 1 Timothy 1.19, a passage we looked at this morning. As some had made shipwreck of their faith. Obviously we can lose the promise. Because it's just that. A promise that is contingent upon our what? Our continued obedience to the will of God. Listen to another passage that reinforces this along with another that further reinforces that one. And that's Titus chapter 1. Verse 2. To read the, to get the context, we'll read verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which is according to godliness, listen to verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In what? In hope of eternal life. Paul says, I'm writing to you, Titus, because you, along with me and all the faithful, we share a what? A hope. What is the hope? In hope of eternal life, which God promised. John says, this is the promise. Eternal life. Completely consistent with what Paul wrote. But notice that Paul said, we live in hope of eternal life. That's crucial. Because when you go to Romans 8, 24... From the same writer in Romans 8.24 concerning hope, he writes this. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? You know, we could just kind of alter those words a little bit in reference to this subject and say, if eternal life is yours now and no one can ever take it away from you, why does any inspired writer ever say that we live in hope of eternal life? Why would the same writer who said in hope of eternal life also write that you don't hope for something you already have? Therefore, we don't already have eternal life. We cannot already have eternal life, but we do have this, the promise, the hope. And that's what both John and Paul remind us of. And if we live as we should in compliance with the will of God, that hope, that promise, will one day be a reality. And life eternal in heaven will be ours. But in order for that to be the case, we must live in harmony with the will of God, which includes making sure that we're not taken in by false teaching and false teachers, but that we test the spirits by this book which we now have in its final form. Because tragically, as in John's day, there are many false teachers today who have gone out into the world. But thanks be to God 
we have the truth, can know the truth, and obey the truth. Have you obeyed it tonight? Have you believed with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repented of your sins, confessed him to be the Christ, and been buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins? Those are the things that Jesus himself requires in his word. Believe that I am he or die in your sins, John 8, 24. Repent or perish, Luke 13, 3. Confess me and I'll confess you before the Father, Matthew 10, 32. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. And then as you rise from that watery grave of baptism, having been cleansed in the water, but not by the water, but cleansed by the blood that's applied in the water, as God has promised to do, you'll rise with another promise, the promise of eternal life with a hope that is sure and steadfast and that can one day become hope that is seen in the reality of standing before God in Christ and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. If you've once known that hope, and appreciated and clung to that promise, but you no longer cling to it because you've gone back into the world or sinned in a way to bring reproach upon the body of Christ in a public way and need to repent of that in a public way, then we plead with you to do that so that once again you may have the hope of eternal life that you once had. If you need to come tonight, will you do so now as we stand to sing to encourage you?